and uh, take your Bibles and open with me, if you will, to the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians, a book we finished not too long ago uh, in our, our Sunday morning series of, of messages, uh, but one that I spent some time in uh, the last week or so preparing for the love feast. And uh, I have to say, I think Pastor does a great job for all the things he keeps going uh, and keeps things moving. It's not so easy uh, when, when you're the one up there trying to keep things moving along, keep things organized. Uh, so uh, I, I certainly miss him today. Uh, but uh, we'll take a look at uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, we focused on just a few verses in preparation for our uh, communion, Lord's Table. Uh, which are in the middle of chapter 9, but I wanted to take the opportunity to read the whole context and then uh, come back to it a little bit later this morning. So let's we're going to read chapters 8, 9, and 10. Ready? Seatbelts fast. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Uh, we, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if we are so called, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some, with consciousness of the idol, until, until now, eat as a thing offered to an idol, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat Neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of, conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I, a, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his, whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? 
Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen that God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap our, your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the holy things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the altar offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do it willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with the stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Jesus Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partakers of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion cup of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one body, are one bread and one body, and we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to an idol, do not eat. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord and for all its full, and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Again, if you'll open your Bibles with me to First uh, Corinthians. And uh, we'll be in uh, chapter 9 specifically. I wanted to take the time to read the, the fuller context. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians um, where Paul has a number of issues to dealt, deal with um, with regard to the church there at Corinth and the various things that were going on. And we would look at that church and we would think, boy, what a, what a mess. Um, and... Uh, in fact, that seems to be Paul's uh, opinion as well. But uh, if it weren't for that, we wouldn't have a lot of really uh, great instruction uh, coming down to us um, in God's Word. And so here in the passage we read this morning, uh, we are reading about their question to him. So Paul writes to the Corinthians to address some things, as I alluded to, going on in the church. Sectarianism. 
Um, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am the really spiritual ones, I am of Jesus. Um, and Paul really takes them to task because he's hearing about these things. And uh, he's uh, really taking the Corinthian church to task for the carnality in all the different ways their uh, carnalness, their fleshly uh, lusts and impulses are getting the better of them even as a fellowship of believers, even as they come together ostensibly to serve God, to worship His Christ, and to minister one to another, yet it's their carnality which keeps them um, bickering one with another, uh, keeps them promoting um, lifestyles and behaviors which are contrary to the clear teaching of God's Word, the sexual immorality that was going on uh, in the church at that time. So Paul writes to the Corinthians to address uh, a number of these issues, behavioral issues that he wants to um, uh, deal with early on in the book. And then then, uh, later in the book, he turns his attention to a number of things which are all mixed up, doctrinal points. Uh, How should we as a church address these matters, how doctrine, not just doctrine, but how doctrine touches the practical living out of our Christian life as a community of believers in Jesus Christ, as uh, in, in the culture that we find ourselves in, in Corinth. And so they asked him about, for instance, marriage in chapter 7. And he gives a lot of good instruction about marriage. And then when we get to chapter 8, apparently they also asked him about, well, what about this Um, business of idolatry and especially the eating of foods that have first been sacrificed uh, to idols. Uh, The people of that day weren't foolish. Uh, The the food, you know, animal sacrifice was a large part of the pagan practice of those days. And so anytime you wanted to appease a god, you would bring, you know, some animal, some gift and, and typically it would be a high quality uh, type of a, um, animal or, um, and it would be sacrificed. And of course, not being foolish, they didn't want that sacrifice, that meat that came from that sacrifice to go to waste. So oftentimes they would put it out in the marketplace, even though originally it was used in this pagan practice. And so the question comes up, well, what do we do? I mean, the, the marketplace is flooded with this kind of meat. Um, And not only that, but our culture. Anytime we want to go over to a friend's house or a neighbor's house, even if it's just to have a testimony with them uh, and and share a meal in order to have opportunity to be a testimony and and perhaps share the gospel, oftentimes the food that they serve in the home has been, especially if it's some special occasion like marriage of a daughter. Maybe it's a neighbor girl that you or, or, or boy that you are uh, familiar with and have grown up with and now their parents want to celebrate the fact that they graduated school or, you know, some social milestone, marriage or something like that. And so they invite you over, having known these kids, and of course, the, in thanks, they've offered the food to an idol and then they set it out for the guests. Uh, what do you do with that? Uh, how do you respond to that? And of course and perhaps what we might consider by this point typical Corinthian fashion, there were two sides to the issue. And they just couldn't uh, seem to 
come eye to eye. And so that's what Paul is addressing here in, in Corinthians. And, and we shouldn't see ourselves as too different. There's a lot of stuff in our culture that we don't agree with, that we see at best the vanity of it, and at worst the idolatry, the demonic aspect of the thoughts and the attitudes that really undergird the types of ideas, imagery, behavior associated with various social and cultural practices. Even rather mundane things like what we find in the media, the songs or the movies, uh, themes and imagery that we find there are not themes and imagery which are uh, consistent with, with God's Word. And so, how do we deal with these things? How do we relate to them? How do we relate to the people who are steeped in these practices uh, so that we can have an opportunity to share the Gospel with them, but then, having seen them come to Christ and come into the church, how do we begin to relate to one another as fellow believers in Christ, knowing that in each of us there's a different level of understanding in terms of what these practices mean and how we should relate to them. And this is not something that was unique to the Corinthians. If uh, any of the New Testament books sort of bring these issues to the forefront, it is the Corinthian but church, uh, Corinthian book, but it's not unique to the Corinthians. Uh, you can look at the passages in, in, in Revelations uh, in the letters to the churches. In each one of those, Christ is oftentimes commending or condemning uh, the churches for various um, uh, practices that they've been caught up in, either doctrinally or in, 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 co- in correspondence with the culture, sexual immorality, pagan practices, and those kinds of things. So it's, there's nothing unique to, to this. It, it happens and has been happening throughout church history and still happens today as we see ourselves steeped, having been raised and bred in a culture with a certain worldview, a certain perspective, which is natural and not natural in the good sense. It is ungodly. The natural man is uh, a carnal man, uh, a man who is spiritually dead and therefore one whose mind and whose pattern of thinking whose old attitude and frame and pers- of life, frame of mind, perspective on things, is opposed to God. And so when we see the culture presenting these goodies, if you will, for us to consume, whether it's through the media or through um, sports or through various uh, cultural practices, we should view them with great skepticism because they come out of worldly ideas and worldly thinking, which is carnal at best, if not demonic, um, because that carnality gives um, opportunity. It gives a place for um, the demonic to operate. And so I wasn't planning on going here, but I think at this time, just flip over to James real quick. This is all background Uh, to the text we all actually want to get to. So in James chapter 3, it's that untamable tongue passage. 
But really in verse 13, James chapter 3 and verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. That boasting will come back in a minute. That's actually what we want to, one of the things we want to look at in our passage in 1 Corinthians. But here he says, Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And a passage that my boys know very well. Where do wars and fights come from among you? They do not come from the desire for pleasures that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. The whole idea here in James is the carnality, the selfishness, which is an expression of the carnal man, the natural man, the fleshly man, the dead or undead, however you want to look at it. And behind that, he says, where these kinds of attitudes, where these kinds of behavior um, exist, there is... This is not something that comes from above. It's earthly, sensual, demonic. This kind of stuff leads to confusion and, and every, every evil thing. And so that's what was going on in Corinthians. If you want to know why the Corinthian church was such a mess, that tells you right there why they were having such problems, why they were so um, uh, uh, messed up. Um, and so when Paul tells them early on, I can't talk to you as spiritual people in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now, you still, you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, natural men, fleshly men, men in whom there is no spirit? There's no spiritual life. There's no spirit of God to communicate that life. There's no regeneration. You're just dead men walking. For when one says, I am a Paul, and another says, I am a Apollos, are you not carnal? And that really sort of sets the tone for Paul's approach to the Corinthians. And really what is the backdrop for all the problems that the Corinthians uh, were having. And so it's no surprise that when we get to his discussion of how do we deal with this issue of food sacrifice to idols, Paul is going to very quickly take out his servant's scalpel and go right to the division of marrow and, uh, and, and bone, right? He's going to point out the carnality which underlies the contention between these two different sides of the issue. Well, I can eat meat because it's just meat. Those idols are nothing whatsoever. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But on the same time, you have to remember that Although those gods aren't real gods because there are only 
there's only one true God, behind that practice of sacrificing to these idols is demonic uh, ideas and philosophies and practices. So, yes, these gods are nothing, and as far as you're concerned, you can go ahead and eat that meat because it belongs to God anyway. There's no other God but Him. But do you really want to be a participator in this service to demons? So that's the balance that needs to be struck for those who have that knowledge that, yeah, it's no big deal. It's just meat, like any other meat. It's all God's and sanctified by prayer, and I'm free um, uh, by, by God's grace through the Jesus Christ shed blood. I can partake of that. No big deal. So number one, do you really want, whether you partake of it or not is one thing, but do you really want to be involved in it and associated with it knowing that, yes, these aren't true gods, but behind this cultural norm, if you will, is this whole demonic world, uh, what we might today call an occultic uh, type of uh, mindset, a service of demons. So that's the balance that needs to be struck for those who uh, have the liberty. But taking it a step further... He also says, and what about those who don't have that same amount of knowledge, that same surety of faith, that same understanding yet um, in, their, in their walk with Christ, that when they see the idol, they don't see it as you see the food sacrificed to the idol. They don't see it as you see it. The idol's nothing. The food is just meat. They see it from the framework or from the perspective of the philosophy, the worldview that um, the idol represents. And so when you partake of it, whether you're associating with that practice yourself, in their, in their minds, the weaker brethren's mind, you are, seeing, you are seen to be associating with it. And so how do you want to handle this? How are you going to carry yourself and represent the gospel message to the weaker in the faith? Um, are you going to just demand your rights and plow full steam ahead? Or are you going to curb your freedom in some way for the sake of or for the benefit of the weaker brethren? And that's what Paul wants to get at. He wants to get at the core, which is what we talked about last week, the core of the Christian walk, that primary virtue, Christian virtue, which is that agape love, that self-sacrificing kind of love, uh, the um, uh, humbling oneself and becoming uh, a servant of another, even someone who is of, if you will, lesser standing uh, than, than you are. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about the demonstration of that love in Christ. Christ humbled himself and condescended to be a servant, our servant, and uh, had really no reason to do that uh, other than his agape, uh, his love. Uh, for us. Uh, he certainly was higher than us. 
and to do anything to condescend to us would be a lowering of himself, a humiliation, literally. Um, and yet he did it uh, for our sake. And that's what Paul brings, uh, brings to the fore here in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I think I just wanted to spend some time um, this morning considering it a little bit broader uh, just because, well, it's been a good reminder to me and, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately and I got the call yesterday morning that I'd be doing this. So, here we go. So, uh, take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll jump into the middle of it. He's using the example of... <clears throat> Uh, of something that he's done personally, a choice that he's made personally in his ministry to go, if you will, above and beyond the call of duty. Not because there's any, any necessity that he do this thing, but the reason he does it, again, brings out this point of uh, the humbling of himself, the curbing of his liberty in Christ and the freedoms that he enjoys in Christ for the good, ultimate good of others and, by the way, for his own protection. And that's the part I, last week that I don't think I spent um, uh, enough time on that I want to try and get to today. So in verse uh, chapter 9 in verse, uh, let's see, where do we start? In verse 15. He just said, look, I can be paid for the work that I do in bringing you the gospel. This is, in fact, the biblical principle. It's what the other apostles do. It's what the Lord himself said. And it's what the Old Testament. So he's a number of ways that he puts forth this right. He has the right in his ministry to receive material remuneration. To, to, to receive um, an offering, a payment for the bringing of the gospel. And he says, I don't do this. He gives the example of the, in verse 13 of those who in the Old Testament serve at the altar. They eat from the altar. Uh, he uses worldly examples. You don't go to war unless you're going to profit in it. Uh, you don't plant a vineyard and not partake of it some of it for yourself, even if your point is to sell it or to benefit somebody else. So, even so, in verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. The idea is there, you, sh you can be paid to minister uh, the gospel as a pastor or uh, as an evangelist or as a, as a missionary, that it's okay that as you labor to uh, expect that your material needs, clothing, food, shelter, um, although, although that's not specifically called out in Scripture, but at least food, food and clothing, that these material needs can be met by those to whom you, by those to whom you minister. You can live from the gospel. But, Paul says, even though this is my right, even though this is my privilege, later on, even though this is my authority, is the word he uses in this passage, 
I have used none of these things. Any one of these arguments I could have brought forward to show to you my right, my authority to receive from you material gain or material profit or at least have my material needs met. But he says, I have done none of these things. In fact, I'm not even now, in verse 15, writing these things to you to make you feel guilty so that you will do these things. That's not my point. I'm trying to lay forth an example here. He says, I don't want you, now that I've written it, to think that I want you to do these things for me. Because my perspective is, Paul says, that it would be better for me, in fact, to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul is concerned here that he will have no grounds to boast, uh, that he will have nothing to boast in if they start paying him for the service that he renders, the service of the gospel, bringing them the gospel, teaching them the gospel. He doesn't want this to happen. He thinks it's better that he should die than that he should not be able to boast. And that brings up, maybe in your mind, at least it did in my mind, a note of dissonance. Boasting? That's not Christian, is it? Paul wants to have grounds to boast? Is that really what he's saying? I mean, boast. this word boast, it comes, I mean, we, we read it, earlier on in James um, that it's associated with fleshly, carnal kinds of activities, self-aggrandizement over there in James. And Paul himself uses it in other passages as a very, as a technical term. It shows up in some very key areas of his doctrine of justification by faith. So if you flip over to Romans chapter 3, several related words. Here in in 1 Corinthians, we have the noun form. He's talking about, I don't want anyone to remove the object, the boast, the the thing, if you will, that um, the the something to boast about, the grounds or the the object of my boasting. Um, But in Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, this idea of boasting sort of shows up again in a negative light. He says, Where is boasting then? What grounds or what right have you to boast if we are justified by faith? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. If this is the faith apart from the law, what right have we to boast? It is excluded in chapter 3, verse 27. Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. If salvation came from the law, you would have right to boast. So it's a work. It's something that you have done. There was a metric laid out. You achieved the goal. You earned the result. But Paul Paul says... When he teaches justification by faith alone, 
He says there's no grounds for boasting because it's not based on the law. It's not something that you can do. It's based on not the Old Testament law of works, but instead the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift, gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no room in the gospel message for this idea of boasting in what we have done, what we have accomplished, the righteousness that we have acquired or gained for ourselves. This is Paul's clear teaching over and over again. Again in Romans 2.23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why is there no grounds for boasting in the law? Because at the end of the day, you can't keep the law. There's no grounds for boasting because the law cannot be kept. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are counted, but as those who, uh, not as grace, but as a debt, something that's owed. But of course, when it comes to the law of faith, it's not something that we earn. Faith is in a different category than works. Abraham has no grounds for boasting because his justification was not based on works. That was not the deal that God offered. In, if, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 2, the scripture says he believed God and it was accounted to him on God's reckoning. It was accounted to him as righteousness. He was credited with righteousness. And it's obvious here that faith is not viewed as a work. It is in another category in God's accounting system. And even so much so that even though it is Abraham who believes, it's not God who believes for Abraham or God who causes Abraham to believe. Abraham doesn't have to be saved before he's saved. Right? It's Abraham who believes, but even that, faith is of such a different nature that even the fact that it's Abraham who believes God, that's not something to boast about. That's no credit to Abraham. Why? What is it about this law of faith which removes any bragging or any boasting on the part of the one who is credited with righteousness because they believe? Faith is not viewed as a work. We've already mentioned it's in another category in God's accounting system. And even though it's Abraham who believes, his faith is not grounds for boasting because he doesn't earn or deserve anything for it. But it is the free promise and grace of God to credit 
or account his believing as if he had he were righteous. And this is why faith is in a whole other category. It's in the category of God's grace and not in the category of works. There is no boasting in the category of grace because you haven't done anything. God, you don't deserve it. It's only because of God's free choice, His mercy, His goodness, His love, His grace, that He makes it available to you and He reckons or accounts or credits you with righteousness for something that's insignificant when compared with the works that establish righteousness under the law. Faith is nothing compared to those works. People who do those works do great things, godly things. And faith is just, eh, it's faith. But God says, that even is what I will credit righteousness for. The keeping of the law can't be done. It's God's free promise and His grace to credit or to account righteousness where righteousness isn't earned or deserved in any way, shape, or form. It's simply by God's reckoning. And then to go beyond just the accounting and to actually make that righteousness effectual for Abraham or for us today, believers in Jesus Christ, by giving us the gift of His Spirit to empower us and to enable us and to regenerate us so that we can become spiritually alive and walk according to the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us who are led not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. These, there's no room for boasting in any of this. Because there's nothing that we have done which is sufficient to brag about. We haven't earned it. We haven't made God somehow indebted to us. It's all on His side. His accounting. His reckoning. The littlest thing, faith, is all that we're required to do. And in that scheme of things, Paul over and over again says, in the Christian uh, doctrine of salvation, of justification, of righteousness apart from the law, there is no grounds for boasting. Because you haven't done anything to deserve anything. It's all God and His reckoning and His accounting that is giving you what you don't deserve. In earlier on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 30, 31, Paul also talks about boasting. And this is why, at least in my mind, having all of these passages in the back of my mind, that note of dissonance was raised when Paul was saying, I don't want my boasting to be void. My ability, my, I want to have something to boast about. What is he really saying? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 31... Uh, he says, uh, he who glories, so there's all this boasting and bragging about I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, all the sectarianism that was going on in this carnal, carnal church. And he says, no, 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 no. He who glories, or he who boasts, 
Let his boast be in the Lord. And this is, it is written, he says. Well, where is it written? It's written in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24. And there he's paraphrasing in 1 Corinthians. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24, he says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. And so this is in the back of Paul's mind when he says, look, if you want any, any if you have anything to boast about, let it be in this one thing, in the Lord. Let him who glories, glory in the Lord, that he knows him, that he understands how to live rightly before him and to please him. That's the only basis we have for boasting or bragging. And I think it's in that light that Paul says here that he has this grounds for boasting. He has something to be, if you will, proud of in going above and beyond the call of duty. So a couple of commentators wrote things on 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 31 like, For Christians, this is the only fitting form of boasting, to boast of God through Jesus Christ, or as Galatians 6.14 puts it, to glory in the cross of our Lord. Another commentator says, If he boasts of his own behavior, he should only do so insofar as his life is lived in dependence on God and responsibility to him. So what is Paul saying here? That he has something, he wants to have something to boast about. He doesn't want the Corinthians to engage in or to feel obligated because of what the instruction he's giving them to send him money or to pay him in any way because if they did, they would undermine or make his boasting, his the thing that he's proud of, if you will, null and void. So what is it that he wants to boast about? Verse 16, is it because he preaches the gospel? Nope, nah, I can't boast about that. Why? Because I've been strong-armed into it. Necessity is laid upon me, is the way it's translated for us in the New King James, but literally it's with bent arm. The idea is compulsion. We would say strong-arm is, is the turn of phrase that we would use. He was strong-armed into preaching the gospel. When did that happen? On the road to Damascus. He was compelled to bow before Christ. He was strong-armed and he was told, you will suffer for me. He was strong-armed and he has nothing to boast about there. He, this was a matter of compulsion. Uh, he was not free to determine whether he did or did not th- do this thing. He was, in fact, he says, if I don't preach, woe is me. I've got to do this thing. I've been strong-armed into this thing because if I don't do it, I'm in a world of hurt. So remember, the idea of boasting was to have something credited. You've earned something. You deserve a reward. Paul is saying here, look, my preaching to you, the gospel, I haven't earned anything by that. I don't want you to pay me for that. I have to do this. If I don't do this, I'm in big trouble. So I, don't, I haven't earned anything. If I'm going to, if you will, earn 
or get anything to my credit. I have to go above and beyond this, what I'm compelled to do. And that's what he says in verse 17. If I do this willingly, there's two responses. I'm being compelled to do this. I'm being strong-armed into this thing of preaching the gospel. If I don't, I'm in trouble. So I have two responses to this. I can either do it willingly or I can do it unwillingly. And I think for many of us Christians, we see the compulsion. We see the necessity. We see the woe is us if we don't do it. But we don't ever think about how to go above and beyond the minimal, the necessity of it. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't deserve anything for preaching the gospel. I have to. I have no choice, if you will. The only choice I have is whether I do it willingly or do it not willingly. If I do it not willingly, then I'm just a steward who's been entrusted with a responsibility that I have no part of. I'm just taking care of it for somebody else. I have to do it. I'm this person's subject. I'm, I'm in service to him. I have to do his will. I have a dispensation. Uh, the, the word there is a household economy, a house to run. That's what you would do when you have a, a butler, your highest ranking servant. You would give him a dispensation. You would give him the economics of the household. He would run the house for you. And that's what he's saying here. I'm, I'm just a butler if I do this thing unwillingly. But if I do it willingly, I have a reward. A reward. I've earned something. Now, I've got credit. Now, that idea of reward is compensation. I get paid. I've earned wages. Because I'm doing this thing which I'm compelled to do willingly. So which is it, Paul? Are you doing it willingly in order to receive a reward? Or are you doing it against your will and just being a uh, a servant, um, someone who has been handed this dispensation, this, this uh, responsibility to, to take care of. Verse 18 answers that with a question. What is my reward then? Obviously, he views himself as the one who is doing this work that he's strong-armed into willingly. And because he's doing it willingly and going above and beyond the call of duty. He says, I have a reward. It's not the reward of salvation. That's already been taken care of. That's already something that, in God's economy, there's no room for bragging or boasting about. We've seen that very clearly in Romans. But, when we do God's work willingly... And when we do God's work in dependence on Him and in responsibility to Him, we have a chance to go above and beyond the call of duty. We all understand, or maybe you've heard, that we'll all stand, even as believers, before the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll have to get an account of the life that we lived for Him in this world. So in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? 
for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The idea here is God's the one who's going to judge between brethren. Uh, God's the one who's going to determine whether what you did and how you did it is of any value uh, in, the, in that day. In 2 Corinthians, so don't, don't go judging one another. Uh, that's, that's Christ's prerogative. And you yourself are going to have to stand before Christ and give an account. Um, and so then the reminder is also with the measure that you judge others, you're going to be held to that standard. And, you know, very often we don't measure up to that same standard that we hold others to. In Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's something that we are going to get in that day. Our lives, our walk is going to be evaluated. Some of them are going to be turned away at the door. Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do all this religious activity in your name? Wasn't I serving you? Wasn't Get away from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or workers of iniquity. Some think they'll be standing, but they're going to be gone when they separate the sheep from the goats. And then amongst the sheep, there's going to be a reckoning. And there's going to be a doling out. The first thing, the first test that we have to evaluate ourselves on is that test of whether we're even going to make it that far. Are we really disciples of Christ? Are we really serving Him? Or have we just taken the knowledge of salvation, that talent, and buried it in the ground and become unprofitable servants, wicked servants, to be cast out in the outer darkness. You should have at least taken that talent and put it in the bank and got interest. That's the first assessment that we need to make. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians In 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourselves, in verse 5, as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. This issue of disqualification, we'll come back to again at the end of our passage. But I trust that you will know when you've done this thing, when you've examined yourself, my trust, my hope, is that you will know at the end of this problem that you are not disqualified. But this is something we ought to do. Are we even true followers of Christ? Or are we fooling ourselves, doing religious service in His name, but yet He doesn't know us? Knowing something about him, claiming knowledge about him, but not doing the things which are consistent. Taking that talent, knowing he's a hard man, knowing that he demands a return on what he has not himself sown. We should at least, having that knowledge, do what is consistent, the very minimum of what is consistent with that knowledge. And that is to take that talent and put it in the bank and at least get interest 
But to take it and bury it in the ground, to do nothing which is consistent with the knowledge we have of the Master, profitless, worthless, vanity, that won't save you in the day. Didn't save that servant. Those are the things that we have to consider. Are we in the faith? And then when we're in the faith, what are we about? What motivates us? Is it our concern? Our love for one another? Do we go above and beyond the call of duty? Not using our freedom, our authority even, in the gospel for those who have it, Apostle Paul, to please ourselves, to gratify ourselves, to fulfill our own wishes and desires. Paul says, what is my reward? I'm doing this willingly. I'm going above and beyond the call of duty. Why? Very simple. That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. I want it to be free. This is my reward. My reward is not even to be the one known as the free preacher. It's not so much... The emphasis here isn't on the subject, but on the agent, the act that he performs. It's not that he wants to earn the, the badge of the one who preaches the gospel free of charge. He's not trying to become identified He's not looking for an identify uh, an identity. He's not looking to actualize him his own self and to have this appellation predicated of him. Paul, the one who preaches the gospel free of charge. That's not what he's after. Because the very next verse, there's a word in here, the Greek, that, it's translated, or the very next phrase, that, the way it's translated in our New King James. It's a, claw, it's a word in the Greek that says, here's the purpose, here's the reason. This is what I'm really after. I go above and beyond the call of duty so by presenting the gospel so that I can present the gospel. This is what I do. Not to be known as the one who does that, but to be the agent who does this thing for the purpose of not abusing my authority in the gospel. I'm not looking for credit. I'm not looking for an appellation. I'm not looking to be the one who does this and to have that to be known as that one. I'm looking to be the agent who does this to affect some purpose. I want to see something happen. I want to see a result. And that is very different from the way our culture views what our life is all about. Our culture views our lives all about us and what we can do to better ourselves and to fulfill ourselves and to become more actualized as individuals. That sort of humanistic philosophy, it pervades education, healthcare, psychology, just about everything in our culture. The Lego movie, which is one of the reasons why I hate that movie has this idea that the, 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 the idea here is that the organism has one basic tendency and one basic striving. Carl Rogers said, to actualize, maintain, and enhance the experiencing organism. There's a singular unfolding pattern towards self-fulfillment. 
Have you heard things like this? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The inherent tendency of the organism is to develop all its capacities in ways which serve to maintain or enhance the organism. This involves far more than striving for basic needs of air, food, water, and so on. It involves a movement toward autonomy and internal control as opposed to conformity to external standards. Does that sound like Paul's frame of reference? Does that sound like social work? Psychology, counseling, even Christian, biblical counseling is steeped in this way of thinking. That it's all about me. The whole you know, um, idea that you need to have higher self-esteem. That's what this is. That's what this way of thinking is. That's the way, the pattern that we fall into. Everyone's a special. Everything is awesome when other people recognize you for who you are and you fulfilled your, your destiny and understood that you're special in your own way. Lego movie. Is that godly? Why do we eat this stuff up? That's not Paul's frame of reference. In verse 19, For though I am free, freedom, let it ring, let it ring, let it ring. Though I am free from all men, that word there is just the way we would see it. God bless the USA. Freedom. I am free. Yes, indeed. Social, political, I have this ability for self-determination. I have political and social freedom which allows me to determine for myself what I'm going to do. I am unrestrained. I can go and come, come and go at my own pleasure. I'm a citizen of the United States. But here, Paul's saying, this is who I am in Christ, but I have made myself a servant. I have enslaved myself, literally. Even though this is in Christ, which is far different from our political notions of freedom, far more transcendent. Even in Christ, this is who I am, yet I have enslaved myself. It's not about me and fulfilling my wants and wishes and desires and capacities, enhancing my experience. It's about everyone else, the Jew, the Gentile, those under the law, those without the law, those who are weak. That's who it's about. I become all these things. Talk about a person with an identity crisis. I'm a Jew. No, I'm one who's under the law. No, I'm someone who is without the law. No, I am someone who is weak. Who are you, Paul? What are you about? You have a problem. You have no self. You're not fulfilled. You have no identity. You're weak. You're like a homemaker. You've got to get out there and become a somebody. Not a meek and mild mouse who has no means for self-fulfillment in the home. Feminism. This is everywhere. This is how our world views the way life should be lived. And the gospel is contrary to all of that. And we have to see it for what it is. Doctrines of demons. 
Why, Paul? Why are you so messed up? Why don't you get it? Why don't you have something to lay hold of? Why don't you have an identity? Why aren't you a real self, fulfilled and actualized? I do this, I, Paul says. This is what I do as an agent in the world who can affect something in the world. I do this for the gospel's sake. Verse 22, so that by all means, becoming all things to all people, I can by all means save some. At the end, in verse 33 of chapter 10, he says, I, I also pleasure, uh, I also seek to please all men in all things, not thinking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. I do this for their sake. It's not about me and what I want and what would please me and what would make me feel good. It's what they need. And I'll make myself the scum of the world if it means that they have a chance to hear the gospel and perhaps believe. That's what it's about. But there's more than that. Paul says, I have to do this thing. I'm compelled. I'm strong-armed into this thing. And not only that, I have to go above and beyond the call of duty so that I can have a reward. I can have an effect in the world. Not a credit or an appellation or predication to me. I am the one who does this. Or who, you know, who has, who can, this can be said of. But I want to have an effect. I want people to hear the gospel. I want people to believe And it doesn't matter how I'm viewed, high or low, how I live, rich or poor. I'm all things to all people for their sake, for their need. This I do for the gospel's sake, number one, so that they can believe and be saved. And number two, so that I also may be a partaker of it with you. If you're not engaged in the work of the gospel. And if you're not motivated in that work by the needs of others, by love, fundamentally. If you love me, keep my commandments. My commandments aren't grievance on them, I love one another. You're not his disciple. Paul says, I have to do this. I'm compelled to do this. Woe is me if I don't do it. And I want to go above and beyond. I want to do it willingly so that I can have a reward in that day But also, I can't not do it this way. Because if I don't, if I'm not motivated out of love, and I don't do it consistent with that motivation of love, I'm not a partaker of it. Having preached to others, in verse 27, I myself become rejected, disqualified. Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Unless indeed, and the answer implied in 2 Corinthians, that passage we looked at, it's implied response of no, you're not disqualified. And Paul says, I have hope that once you've gone through this self-examination, you'll determine for yourselves that you're not rejected, that you're strong in the faith, that you're doing it well, you're doing what you should be doing, and you're doing it above and beyond the call of duty, and you're motivated, your motives are right and pure. So Paul says, I want to do this for their sake, but also... I have to do it because I want to be a partaker of it too. Do you not know 
Those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. The prize in view here is the reward of above and beyond the call of duty. But in doing that, doing it in a way and motivate it for reasons which are consistent with the gospel itself. And everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I know who my enemy is. I know where my blows need to land. I'm not shadow boxing here. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. All those things that would be pleasing, all those goodies that are placed out there, I refuse. And I beat my body because I want to win a prize. I'm in training. I have a goal. And I want to reach that goal. Lest when I have preached to others, I should become disqualified. So it's the same for us. If we're not motivated by love, if we're not engaged in the work, if we're not seeking those ways in which we go above and beyond the call of duty, which in God's accounting scheme are things that we can do. Paul says, I want to do this willingly so that I will have a reward. But in doing that, we have to do those things consistent with those principles of love and the needs of others, not the fulfillment of ourselves, not the pleasing of ourselves. Lest we having preached to others, ourselves become disqualified. And in the end, we're like that servant who did all those things, and yet Christ never knew. Or like that other servant who had the knowledge and had the investment, the principle from the master, but refused to do the minimum to get even the smallest return. So the question for us is, where are we? Are we in the faith? And if so... Are we seeking excellence to go above and beyond the call of duty in a manner consistent with the principles of Christian love and the working of God's Spirit, the needs of others, and not what the world tells us we need to seek after? Self, fulfillment, actualization. Which is it? And where do we stand? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we do thank you for your love and faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge and reminder of the ways in which our world would push us in a direction that is not consistent with your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly the truth of your word, its application, and stand boldly in, for you and uh, apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.